and welcome back to another fact-filled Mission Baby. Hi, in this episode, the lesser talked about but equally important areas of IVF. We know that IVF is this huge, all-encompassing topic for discussion, but what is not touched on widely is the treatment add-ons, the financial help that's out there, where to get your meds from, how to support your mental health during IVF, particularly during that hideous two-week wait, and how to navigate the workplace with fertility. We're going to get to the bottom of it all. Right, Simone, let's start with the add-ons. I was offered so many add-ons to my own IVF treatment plan with the promise that they will increase my chance of conceiving. I mean, sounds pretty good. But can you really tell me what actually works and what should we be doing alongside IVF? I really wish I could, Danny. (laughs) I wish I had all the answers. But it's a huge area filled with options that at best increase people's chances at getting pregnant and at worst drain people of a lot of money. The HFEA who regulate clinics in the UK give them a red warning. But let me break some of these down and discuss some of the pros and cons of the most commonly used ones. You may have been offered some of these. Um, You may have researched them. Um, You may be wondering if it's something you should consider. They usually get mentioned if you have a failed round or if you have unexplained infertility or if you have suffered recurrent miscarriages. So it's usually something that a doctor will suggest to you if they're looking for a little extra help on top of your IVF. Right. So let's dive in with the first add on the hysteroscopy. What is it and why may it help us? See, this one to me, this is probably the most common sense one. Okay. So basically, they just blow loads of uh, saline fluid into your uterus so they can have a look at all the walls and see what's going on. Uh, so I've had this done. So is it also called the hyphosy as well? The hyphosy is more the tubes. Tubes, sorry. But there's yeah. lots of different names for all of these uh, things. Okay. It's just the idea of looking at what's going on inside. Yeah. Some clinics insist that you have this done before you have any treatment. And they swear that it helps increase the chance of you getting pregnant. But generally, it is just a look around with some fluid. It's like just... It's not like a clean or anything like like that. washing your mouth out with a bit of water. (laughs) A bit of a car wash. (laughs) So sometimes if they've seen something on scan, they might say, okay, let's just have a closer look Mm -hmm. and have a good look. And if you imagine your uterine walls are kind of together, um, when you put some fluid in it, it actually opens up the space and allows them to have a look around. Okay. Is there any research that says this definitely improves your chances? No. Might you just throw it in there if you just want to see if something else will help yes with all of these things there is no definitive Mm. I wish there was but Mm. there isn't any definitive okay what about the next one which is the endometrial scratch now this sounds pretty hideous yeah it does (laughs) so can you just tell a little bit about what it is what actually goes on like is it painful like what what should we be expecting so I think the name really does scare people I mean scratch yeah (laughs) Uh, I've heard people compare it to having a, a facial. So, oh. <laughs> or, or should I say a face scrub? So, imagine you clear the dead cells off your face. Okay. And the fresh stuff that grows is supposed to be kind of new and lovely, right? Okay. So, it's that kind of idea. It's, it's <laughs> a little bit um, old fashioned, potentially. Yeah. And I don't think it's very popular anymore amongst a lot of clinicians. And actually, the idea of the endometrial scratch came around after the idea of the hysteroscopy. So it was a case of, okay, well, if the hysteroscopy is just kind of irritating the lining slightly, Mm. let's not do the whole hysteroscopy, but let's just irritate the lining slightly. So it's a little bit like an exfoliation, like exfoliation of your uterus. Basically, yeah. 
that's that's that one but again okay. again do we have loads of research that yeah. says this is going to help no it's just something else that's kind of chucked in that says okay this might help give it a go it's so hard though because you are you know you want to try everything possible to to try and conceive so of course you know any person going through to the clinic or to uh, you know to on the nhs would be like just just give it all to me i will try everything but as you said there is actually not much research behind it in terms of success rates. Is that correct? Well, people get pregnant after yeah. it, for sure. But would they have got pregnant yeah. if they didn't have it? Nobody can ever know. At worst, you might say clinics, hospitals make money from it. At best, you might say they improve people's chances. Yeah, I'm sitting firmly on the fence <laughs> right here. Okay. I've also heard about ovarian rejuvenation, which sounds quite promising. And I love the word rejuvenation. <laughs> what is it? This is a little bit... I the, the research is still very young. So they've done lots of research at Harvard on this. They've done... It's not really done in the UK, um, as far as I know. People do travel abroad. Um, I know there are clinics in Crete and in Spain that offer this service. So the idea is that your blood is taken and then it's condensed down for the plasma-rich stuff. And so this kind of treatment's used for facial treatment yeah, or so dentistry. It's P- so it's PRP, isn't exactly. it? Platelet-rich therapy. And it's particularly amazing at the moment for hair loss. Right. So they're using it for, for hair loss on the scalp and it, as you, you know, it rejuvenates the hair follicles. So I understand the premise of how it does with, with the ovaries. But as you say, it's, it's really in its infancy at the moment, isn't it? It's exactly that. Is it's, it promising, though? Is it something that... You know what? If anyone listening to this has had this treatment and it's worked for them, I'd love to hear. I'd love to speak to somebody who it's worked for. I have met women who've had it. So the idea how you tell whether it's been successful or not is you do an antral follicle count before and you do um, certain set of hormones tests before and if you have the treatment and then months after your antral follicle count is greater or your hormone levels are lower then people surmise that it's worked but I mean I love the idea and I hear what you're saying about hair loss and other things I haven't seen it work with ovaries Uh, it's a a magical idea like many of these things but show me show me someone (laughs) that it's worked for now even saying it sounds horrendous but ovarian drilling is something that keeps popping up and I know we've been contacted by a number of women who've wanted to find out more about it and it's particularly good for people with PCOS so polycystic ovaries it does sound frankly terrifying what is it is it painful and what is the process again it's a horrible name I, don't, I, I don't mean know. who comes up with these names I think we need to rename everything you know in IVF do. you know it? we <laughs> really do <laughs> alright so on its basic level it's like a tiny pin being poked into the outside of your ovaries this is done while you're asleep yeah. okay imagine I guess it's like picking a spot again right you're just putting a tiny pin into the ovary to put some air into it and the idea is that that then encourages you to get one dominant follicle a month so with PCOS you usually wouldn't or with PCO that's the problem you're not ovulating so you're not getting that dominant follicle and the idea with ovarian drilling is it's um, done whilst you're asleep and you just kind of poke it what is the success rate or is this something that's again widely used in clinic so again i mean it can work and unlike unlike other methods i have met people who this has worked for and imagine this is done before your ivf stage right so this is like the the precursor basically the prep work before you're going through ivf exactly so this is this is a case of right this problem isn't getting pregnant but that's because they're not ovulating they're not ovulating because they've got pco let's try and just get one dominant follicle so that's 
yes, you do have to be put to sleep, but it's pretty, it's not very invasive, really. It's on the NHS. That's one good thing. And um, you don't really have to take any other drugs. Am I selling it to you? I think about it. I think about it. (laughs) So, Simone, what is the add-on or a treatment that helps with women going through recurrent implantation issues? So it's really tricky when a woman is getting good embryos. So they're being told you've got fantastic embryos um, and we're following normal protocol, which is to put them back in the luteal phase, the second part of the cycle. Um, It's really tricky then when it just doesn't marry Mm -hmm. and the person. So in a way, you feel like you're wasting these good embryos. We're doing what we can in that we're measuring the lining. We're making sure the women have got the correct amount of estrogen and progesterone on board they're the standard you know bits of the puzzle but when it's just not working um there are companies now who or should i say science labs who think that they can test bits of the endometrium so bits of the uterine lining and check to see whether that is the woman's optimal period in the cycle wow so all this comes with quite a huge price Mm. tag So, so so why can't you do that through an internal scan so through the internal scans, we're checking the, the lining. The, so, the density. Right. So yeah. there's a general agreement that if the lining is a certain thickness, that's optimal. So yeah. it's like a mattress. I've heard it referred to. <laughs> it's like a mattress for the embryo. Okay. Nice memory foam mattress. Yes, I like it. <laughs> so so you've got the mattress and you've got a really good embryo and yeah. you know that the hormones are there. So what's going on? There isn't anyone who can really make no. these two things talk. There's no human on the world that can do that. But people are continually asking, how can we? So there are some heads in the world, in the business, who say, right, we'll take a, take a biopsy of this um, endometrium and we can tell whether maybe it's like, I don't know, a day past its best time or before its best time. You know, it's, it's trying to analyse that. They can essentially that. give a timeline to your your uterine wall exactly so a woman would come in a cycle where she's not putting the embryos back Mm. and we would mimic everything we would do in a cycle where she would put them back and we would take a bit of that biopsy send it off to the lab and they would send us a report back saying this would have been the perfect time or this would have been uh, a day late or this would have been a day early I, I won't pretend I've seen hundreds of people who've done this, but I have seen a few and I haven't seen any who've got pregnant right. after doing this. So again, there's, I mean, I love the idea behind doing the research to make the implantation yeah, process better. We're not there yet. No, 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 I no, mean, no. it's, it, and again, because it's not a very commonly used process, it comes with quite a huge price tag. Um, and what's the procedure like? Is it quite invasive? Is it, is it? pretty much like a smear test and they take a little bit of the cell wall is yeah. that is that what it is exactly okay. so when you say you're taking a piece of the lining that mm. sounds quite dramatic doesn't yeah. it um really it's it's probably it's just taking kind of a scoop from inside okay it, you do it whilst you're awake it doesn't really hurt very much for most people so yeah you're, you're just taking a piece of the lining and sending it off and from that they are trying to assess whether this is the optimal time so Simone let's talk about natural killer cells because this seems to be something that's quite common and I know I've met a lot of women who have had this and are treating this so can you just explain a little bit about what it exactly is it and how you go about treating it so inside the field of obstetrics and gynecology and fertility this is massively controversial yeah massively there are a lot of very high profile consultants who wouldn't touch anything to do with the idea of this at all 
however and um, this is probably the thing that made me want to work in this area um, in fact it was the thing wow. um so as a as a student midwife um delivering babies spending a lot of time having great chats with women um when you're speaking to that woman who's tried for years and years and years to have a baby and it wasn't happening and you, when you it's quite compelling um and when you hear that they then tried this treatment and it did work it kind of blows mm. you away. It, so that from that start, for it being hearsay, I then worked in a place where they did do this kind of treatment um, and I saw it work. Not for everybody, but I saw it work time and time and time again. But I now work in a place where they don't necessarily agree with everything about it. So like everything, you do get charlatans out there. Um, but for this group of women, there's something going on. Um, they're labs are always um, analysed in a completely separate place. It's just really compelling. I, I understand there's not enough randomised controlled trials. Um, I understand that it is controversial. I understand that lots of the treatment's expensive. But when you have met, seen women um, have the treatment and it work, it's really hard to critique it. So, so what exactly is na a natural killer cell? Because it sounds, frankly, horrifying. So it's all to do with the way that our immune system works. Okay. And to keep it really simple, it's about having an overactive immune system, uh, potentially. So when when you think of an embryo implanting, the outside cells are always maternal cells. And the second layer of cells are um, the partner cells. So they're, for want of a better word, alien cells to the woman and the argument behind it is for some people this can mean that the implantation doesn't occur mm. because the woman's body goes wait what's that don't know that and the um, and the treatment is therefore meant to protect the woman's body from doing this and what is the treatment so there are there are different forms of treatment they normally boil down to blood thinners steroids um, either intralipids or IVIG. Now, today in the studio, we've got an extremely special young lady. It's a massively exciting time for her because she is currently 20 weeks pregnant. For me, this is not just your average pregnant person, right? This is someone who's tried for seven years plus to get pregnant. And contrary to... What a lot of people say, there was an awful article recently that really slated these kind of procedures. This woman gets no money for saying what she's going to say. She's just got a lot of experience of these treatments. This is Alison Parrish. Just freewheel it. Tell us what your journey's been. When I was 26, I was on the implant. Um, I just got engaged and I thought, you know what, let's take the implant out because I've heard it takes two years to come out your system, all that sort of stuff. So by 28, I was sort of like, right, I'm free and clear now. I'm getting married in 18 months. I'm not going not gonna to try, but I'm not going to put it off. Um, so for three years on, I've gone to the doctor and I'm like, just, I should be pregnant by now. I, I did everything I was supposed to do. I've come off the implant. And she was like, oh, we'll send you forward for some tests. Went to the NHS tried some different things, sort of had... Um, they started me straight, actually, on a cycle straight away, pretty much. Found out that I wasn't responding. I'm what they call a poor responder <laughs> for IVF. So when I started, um, my first cycle was actually cancelled. My second cycle, I was then tested a little bit more, did the AMH, did everything like that, found out I've got a really low prospect of having many eggs. So we changed cycles, tried again. It didn't work. So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this a rest and I'm going to try it privately. And that's where I thought, I'll try the add-ons. Because I thought, the NHS are telling me this isn't going to work. 
I'm going to make this work. There's going to be a way I'm going to be able to carry my own child. I, I will do it. With my own eggs, I thought. I was like, no, this is how I'm going to do it. This is how it's going to succeed. And I thought it was a matter of just trying a bit harder and doing a few more things and spending a bit more money. So over the last seven years, I have tried a bit harder and I have spent a little bit more money. <laughs> and I have tried every add-on. So there's very few things I haven't done. There's not a great deal of the add-ons that I haven't given a whirl um, and some that I necessarily wouldn't have considered add-ons. So when, like, when you were talking about the hyphosy earlier yeah. on in the hysteroscopy, for me, I didn't consider them add-ons for IVF. I was told yeah. a lot of it, it was, you can then maybe conceive naturally after doing yeah, this. exactly the same. Yeah, so I thought a few of them, like, I'll give it a go. I'm, I'm game. And actually, I came across some really good doctors that never pushed add-ons on me, but they did offer them. And I am a very firm believer in the fact that I think you should be the one in charge of your medical destiny. Go home, do the research, check if that's what you want. <laughs> um, look into it, make sure that you know what you're talking about and do the research and then go back to the doctor and ask the questions. I'm, I, I really don't believe in those people that say it was really pushed on me and I felt like I had to do it. I you agree wholeheartedly. Mm, yeah, I agree. You're, you're Empowerment, in you're in yeah. control. We have to be. The, yeah. the knowledge is power, isn't it? And then yeah. you can make your decision based on what you've read. And nobody knows everything. So it's no. really reassuring actually for your treatment if you come in with a bit of knowledge yeah. and, and a plan. Questions. Yeah, you ask questions to the doctor. I have to say that Alison is like an integral part of our IVF support group. It's so much so that we actually call her Dr. A because she just knows <laughs> she's the fountain of knowledge. Any question we have about any element of fertility treatment, Alison is our go-to. I love it. I, I love, love it. <laughs> I do love a Google. And, I do, and you love it. You love a paper, love a research I paper do. in a clinical. I, love it. And I read it. It's so admirable. You work really hard. You do your research. You never give up. And I will say, I have been to a number of different clinics. Um, so it's not just that I went to the first and tried. I've tried the NHS. I also tried a number of different clinics um, in my area, sort of in the Surrey way. And I also went uptown. Most of the doctors out there are just doing what they think is best for you. They're trying really hard to give you that baby. It works in their favour for you to get pregnant. Can I echo that? That is really... Mm. So we talk about add-ons and you get some scathing things written um, in newspaper articles, particularly, <laughs> about clinics just wanting to make money. But they're missing the whole point. You know, the more people that clinic can make pregnant, the more money that clinic can make. And it's not just that. These people didn't go into midwifery and obstetrics because they wanted the big butt. And especially the doctors that work in these IVF clinics. I know they're there to make some money. Obviously, they're there to make some money. All businesses are. But they are there in the business that they want you to be pregnant. And half the doctors I've met, every time I've done a transfer, I've had like, they've come out, given me a cuddle. And when I had my first six-week scan, one of my midwives that had been with me from my very, very first failure happened to work at the new clinic I was at. She burst into tears at my six-week scan. And I just sat there like, yes, this is very exciting, isn't it? <laughs> Stop crying now. But they're rooting for you, aren't they? They, they want you to succeed at the end yeah. of the day. I would say there are certain add-ons out there that aren't worth as much as others. Um, and some out there that I wouldn't consider an add-on for IVF. So things like the hyphosy and the hysteroscopy, I don't consider them an add-on. I think they're a routine test that you should be checking. I know a lot of people that have fallen pregnant naturally after a hyphosy because mm. it cleared out the tube. Alison, can you list to us what you've actually had in terms of add-ons so we just have a better picture of what you've been through? <laughs> 
I try and remember them all. <laughs> so I know I've had the steroids. So I've been on the prednisolone. I've done the intralipids. I've had the hyphosy. I've had a hygosy as well. I've had hysteroscopy. I've had them all. Um, what else? Um, I'm now on hydroxychloroquine, which is a new one. Um, what else? Oh, good Lord. I've had the scratch a few times. That was my one this time that I said, I'm not doing the scratch. And actually found out there's a lot of research against it now. So that's fine. I'm, some of them are actually quite cheap. So the prednisolone and the hydroxychloroquine, I think you're looking at about £15 for a prescription. That's not going to break the bank. No. Um, I know there's a difference between the IVIG and the intralipids. Quite substantial, I think, Simone, isn't it? Yeah, it's a few hundred pounds pounds difference. difference, Yeah. yeah. And so what are the intralipids for? So as far as I'm aware, they're a breakdown of sort of soya milk, eggs, um, fats and things like that. And it just, it's supposed to help you lower your immune system from attacking too much. And this is linked to natural killer cells? Yeah. I was really intrigued when I first started learning about this because I thought it makes absolute sense. So I know that it's used when people have transplants to help the body not reject the new transplant. Right. Okay. So I thought, yes, of course that makes sense. So if it's used when someone has a, a transplanted liver or yeah. kidney, then yeah, this will be great because it will stop the body from rejecting the embryo. Alison, let's go back to your story because of where you, you've been in your journey so far. Yeah, so I started off mainly just on the intralipids and the steroids. Were you diagnosed with natural killer cells? Oh, yeah, off the charts, yeah. Cytokines, natural killer cells, whatever you can whack on a blood test, I've got it all, yeah. I'm sort of, there's a new chart now for me in one of my doctor's clinics because my level was so high. So <laughs> You're very proud of that. I, I love it. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> yes, you're so unique. I <laughs> have <laughs> gone off the chart of being difficult. Um, on the front of my file, they actually stuck a sticker that said complex. Oh, my God. <laughs> say that went on. Why well, the are not boring. No. You know? <laughs> and I was like, so, yeah, I started off just on the basics. So I actually it was just the steroids and the clexane first, the blood thinners. And then it went on to adding the intralipids. And I tried a few different things. And then I did eventually decide that, you know what, with my own eggs, I'm not going to push this anymore. It's It was too much for me. I didn't. I didn't feel like I had the quality egg, but even if I did, I was only getting one or two at a time. Can I just pause, though? Because you were... I started at 30. You were 30 when you started. That is so young. So young. And you tried for six years? So we've been trying naturally for two years. And then when I was 30, I went to the NHS and found out that my AMH, again... I'm very low on the chart, which I find very exciting. <laughs> wasn't 0.7, it was 0.07. Wow. wow. So I think for 30-year-old, I had the ovaries of like a 90-year-old woman. But I, again, it was one of those, you know, when you go home and you think, no, I'm going to beat this. This mm. is just, I need to do something to make this better. And I think what a lot of people need to take at home is give yourself a little hug. It's not your fault. There's nothing you can do Absolutely. about this. And even saying that to someone, even if I could go back in time and it was me telling me, I wouldn't believe me. (laughs) I would still be like, no, I can do something better. I can start eating better. I can start not drinking. I can start running. Those sorts of things, just because I thought there was something wrong with me. And there isn't. It's a medical condition in the same way that some people are born with diabetes and some people get cancer. Some people just don't have fertility, the ability to be as fertile as others. And that's okay. Don't beat yourself up too much. Because today you sound all strong and that message is amazing. When you felt really, really rubbish, how have you got back up again? Having a plan. Mm. I think it's always important to have a plan. And every time I would always... The two-week wait for me was horrific. Yeah. I could do... 
I could, I could do when it failed, strangely enough, because there would be a plan in place to move on. The two-week wait, hated it's it. the most hideous yeah. time. And that's ever. when there's no, there's nothing you can do no. add-on-wise at that time. No. You're done. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, there's what no else can I do? There is no add-on there. You just have to push through. So I would say it's just a case of having a plan and not sort of putting... I don't know how to say putting all your eggs in one basket without sounding sort of flippant and a bit like, yeah. <laughs> having another idea and having something to move on to. So that's why I was a bit of a Dr. Google and a bit of a researcher, because I found that I wanted to go out there and, and know that if there was a no, I could look into other add-ons and other things I could do next time that would potentially help. And I'm not to say go out there and do every add-on you can. I remember walking out of a doctor's office in London once thinking, you would rip me off. You would take all of my money. I think it was about four and a half thousand pounds of tests and treatment that he wanted me to do before we even started IVF. And I remember one of them being the most stupidest thing ever. He wanted to take my husband's blood, thin it, and then inject it back into me for two hours, like with little stabby motions. It's I can't remember what to, it's called. To see what the effect was. No, it was to stop. So the plan was is to stop me being allergic to his blood. Right. But I was like, I'm pretty sure that's what the prednisolone's for. Why would I pay £2,000 to have you, like, rip, like apparently almost like an allergy test. You know when they put it on your back mm. and they inject you loads of different things. How bizarre. Mm. And four and up, four thousand six hundred pounds, I think they wanted. That was about five years ago. And I remember thinking, I don't need these add-ons. Yeah. And I went back to the clinic that I actually had a really good relationship with, and I was only moving on to try something different. And I gave them the list of all these tests, and it was ten specific tests on this list. And my doctor went, "Are you joking?" What on earth did you go there for? You don't need this test, you don't need this test, you don't need this test. Out of 10 tests where he could have charged me £4,500, because I would have listened to them because I trusted them in the past, he said there was only two of them that he would potentially consider doing if I pushed it. So that's what I mean. A lot of people say that these money-grabbing doctors are out there. He could have taken all my money and I would have gone, if you say I can have a baby, you have my money. Here's the, here's the keys to my house. But... He didn't. He said, you don't need to do any of these, but if you push it, you can have these two done. And I remember doing it. I had a very high, you can have a test that goes right in inside the test for really serious infections that are stuck in your womb that you, you would never know about in a sort of asymptomatic. So I did that one. And then there was another one, um, the carrier typing to see if I was, something to do with matching up with your husband's yeah. DNA, basically. And he was like, you don't need to do these, but if you want to push for them, these are the only two I would suggest. And they came back perfectly clear. And he almost sat there and went, told you you didn't need to do them. <laughs> and I was like, almost, or he did sit there? And- he kind of smugly sat there and said, yeah, you didn't really need to do these. But that was me just going away and doing too much research at that point, because I think I was so desperate. Mm. Um, but what I'm hearing so loud and clear is trust. A respect and trust for whoever's treating you. Mm. So I think whether we're talking about add-ons or IVF or IUI or anything, if you don't feel comfortable with the place that's treating you, you just need to move. You've got to listen to your gut. Yeah. And if you do decide to stay and they do recommend something to you, then you should be doing it. Yeah. I had such a rapport with a couple of my doctors. I did eventually move on, but only because there was clearly something different level wrong with me with regards to the killer cells and the cytokines. So the treatment now, I actually had it all. I was on Fragmin hydroxychloroquine, which is actually an anti-malarial, but apparently has a side effect of lowering your immunes to accept the embryo. Wow. Um, Prednisolone, intralipids. I started 11 cycles. I transferred seven times. With four of those transfers, um, it was a donor egg. They were 
grade A five-day blastocysts, you cannot get better than they were. And I transferred two at a time for, th- for three cycles. And those three cycles failed. But I stopped drinking about five years ago. I started exercising really regularly. I lost about two stone. I tried everything I could health-wise during those to, to be the best that I could be when I was running up to the cycle. There was not, all the sort of things. And you know, you read and you're like, you should have sex with your husband two days before you do a transfer. <laughs> okay, I'll do that. <laughs> you really don't feel like it in the middle of a cycle, but you're like, I've been, I have read somewhere. The other one, I read that McDonald's chips were really good for you after transfer. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> Screw the pineapple. Just go straight for the chips. I've read, what are we doing? I've read everything, Danny. <laughs> and it was this woman in America, and she was doing this thing, and she tested, like, all these women. And it was, like, McDonald's chips, and it was something to do with the salt. And I read another thing. There's a Japanese study out there that says they did a, a blind test with women, and they introduced a clown into one yes, of the rooms. Yeah, I've heard that one. So there was like a hundred women. Good. There was a yeah. hundred women go for an IVS thing, uh, go yes, for their transfer. They put fifty in one room, not all at the same time. Obviously, that'd be a busy day. <laughs> um, and they would introduce a clown to fifty of them, and they had much higher success rates. Even the things that aren't the add-ons medically, we tried them all anyway because. You're gonna you're gonna try the laughing. We always made sure that we would watch an episode of Friends afterwards or something yeah. that was really funny, or listen to like a humorous show on Netflix, something like that, to keep it going. Oh, that's so I romantic! That. You've just taken it to a whole new level. I love that. <laughs> Look, friends in bed with McDonald's chips. So <laughs> we're really Rock and roll, baby. <laughs> we live it large. So what I will say is that with especially, I mean, with my own eggs, I don't, I don't know. I did have some at the beginning. I did have some really good um, quality egg embryos to transfer. But I always found for me that the most compelling thing was that when I moved on to the donor eggs and I was getting the grade A blastocyst, for me, that always felt like a blind trial. And I did three transfers, all with the same meds, all the same everything, not really paying too much attention to the killer cells because I was thinking, actually, it was me before and now this isn't me, mm. so this can work. By the time the third one failed, I thought, no, I, I've, I've got to go back to the meds. I've got to go back to the add-ons. And now on my fourth cycle, it's worked. So what did you add something different for the fourth time? So I was on a much, much higher level of steroid. I'd only ever maximum been on 15 before and I was on 25 for my prednisolone. I was on Fragmin instead of Clexane. I don't know if there's any difference to those, but that was one difference. It's just a blood thinner, but who knows? (laughs) It had a different name. Um, I was on hydroxychloroquine and I'd been on that for about four months before I did the transfer. Um, again, cheap, cheerful. It's not a particularly expensive add-on, which is why for me that one was a bit like when the doctor was suggesting that, I was like, well, yeah. that feels a bit like a no-brainer because it's £30 for 60 days like in the grand scheme of add-ons. Crack oh. on. And how did you feel having all these meds and steroids, you know, having injecting yourself the whole time? How did your body respond to it? So the hydroxychloroquine, fine. I don't think I really had much of a... And remind me what that is again. So it's an anti-malarial. Oh, um, yeah, with the side effect of depressing uh, uh, your immune. Well, it's perceived now. It's, it's one of those new things that's only been out for a couple of sort of maybe 18 months people have been talking about it. Um, but the doctor I go to, it's, it's his sort of thing. He brought it into the world and he, wow. he's found this side effect. So he sort of said to me when I started, are you in a rush? And I just said, it's been seven years. <laughs> I'm kind of in a rush because I'm bored now. But also, if you tell me to wait, I'll wait. And he said the best thing to do was to be on the hydroxy for at least three months wow. before having the cycle. So I just say, if it's three months you want, mm. it's three months you get. So I was like, yeah, that's fine. The prednisolone, yeah, I don't enjoy prednisolone. <laughs> I do when I'm on about 15 milligrams because it has a bizarre side effect of me making me lose weight. Um 
25 milligrams. And that's the steroid. Yeah, the steroid. On the 25 milligrams, one of the side effects is moon face. Well, man, did I embrace moon face. Oh, stop. Oh, it was massive. Shut your face. Stop it. It was massive and you know it. It was just literally the hugest face you've ever seen. And I was putting on a lot of weight and I was eating a lot. And 25 was a different level for me. Mm. So I think it did, again, it was nothing that was really going to put you off your stride. It never stopped me going to work. No, it's manageable. It's totally manageable. It made me hungry and it gave me a big big wide face. But I mean, other than that, it was fine. The Fragment, again, it's an injection. It's not a fun injection. And that's the progesterone and oil? So no, this oh, is no. the blood thinner. The blood thinner. Um, and the only thing I will say with this is it stings a bit like you're being stung by a bee. Mm. But it lasts 30 seconds and you're fine to often go. I was never on the Lubion or any of the progesterone injections. So I did ni- natural cycles with my transfers when we went out there. But I was on Cyclogest. And again, a bit of a headache, nothing serious. The one actually, bizarrely for me, that only affected me when I got further pregnant was the intralipids, Mm. which knocked me off my feet for about 24 hours. Really? But only once I got to 12 weeks. Before then, it didn't bother me at all. And how often were you taking the intralipids? Every four weeks. So it was two weeks at first. So I had one before transfer, then I had one two weeks into transfer. And then I had, once I got to to eight weeks, it was 12 weeks and 16 weeks and 20 weeks. But now I'm done. So positive. Mm. And I just think... You're amazing, but I just, I really do. It is quite hard, I must admit, when you're in a support group. And when I first started out, I mainly used to find the support groups on sort of fertility friends and the mum network, I can't remember what it's called. And I would find them on there and I would join these little groups. And after about 18 months, everyone would have disappeared off with their babies. And then no one talks anymore because on those sort of groups, they tell you once you've got pregnant, you must move on to a different group, not to... Really? Yeah, so not to really... upset those that are still trying but then it would always be like oh very nomads is on their own <laughs> <laughs> anyone in the group tonight <laughs> anyone here? No? Okay. and it's all they were like <laughs> and that was a little bit you know I, I did stop doing groups for a while so I remember I think I was about three years and I was just like I'm not I'm just not going to get involved anymore I'm just going to do this on my own because I can't talk to other people mm. and be the last one left in the group anymore and then Simone was like you're coming to my group. <laughs> and that, I must admit, was the first one I ever did face-to-face. Mm. Um, and I do think it makes a difference because I will genuinely say that the girls in that group are among the nicest girls I've ever met. Danny. <laughs> <laughs> and they are such a lovely group of girls yeah. and it's support that I haven't had before because I think when it's in the flesh and you do go to one of these groups, even mm. if you don't want to, it does put you in in contact with people that are, are supportive to a different level. Yeah. And I didn't want to go. You you knew I didn't want to go. I'd taken that step to go. I'm into such a, a good salesman. You, right? same, same, same with me, yeah. Simone. I did not want to go either. <laughs> no. And you, you coerced us. You both looked at me like, <laughs> God, what does she think? Something's wrong with me. I don't need support. No, do you know what? Yeah, I was like, I do. I just don't want to walk into yeah. a room with people and, and have to sit there. Also, I think sometimes you panic that the women in those groups are going to be like sitting there with their like prayer beads and their like <laughs> quilts. Oh no, do you know what I mean? The ones that are going to be like really hippy dippy and like sort of <laughs> hover over your belly and do a little dance. I cannot tell people enough to find a support group where you can go in person because those girls will be and like other people say the. Is it NCT mums? Mm. Like when you've had your baby. A lot of people I know are like, oh, I've known my friends since NCT like 30 years ago with the best friends ever. I think I'll be saying that about the support group. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Because we've been through so much together and that is what's just 
phenomenal. Mm. And as many as much as other people will try and say, I totally understand what you're going. No, you don't. No, you no, don't. You don't. In really the same way that I don't understand yeah. how it felt for them to have a baby like that. I can't understand what it's like to be you and you can't understand what it's like to be me. But the girls in the support group can. Mm. Having said that, we all have different issues. Yeah. Mm. But we all know how it feels to get through those issues. And, and we have one goal that we're all trying to reach. Yeah. And we're all trying to support each other in the best way that we possibly can. And that's the beauty of it. You know when to leave each other alone. Yeah. Totally. You know when to push each other. You know yeah. when to turn up and just take flowers and chocolates. Yeah. Like that's... It, it's a different level of understanding. Yeah. So I, I cannot say enough, go and find a group, even if you don't want to. Because everything's online and everything's on the top of your phone. You forget that sometimes actually having a cuddle. Yeah. Having that so important. Having totally. that, and having been someone who has done all the groups in the various different fashions <laughs> <laughs> and been left You're standing alone without the baby, um, I, I cannot tell you how much more important it is not to just have someone on the other end of a phone or on the other end of a website or, or having a person present and in front of you who's listening to you and knows... Roughly what you're going through is so important. And because we live in a day and age when everything can be done online, doesn't mean everything should be. So, Alison, that's been amazing. I, you know, I really just think in terms of add-ons, you need to trust whoever's treating you. And if that's where you want to be, if that's the establishment you want to be at, you need to trust with what they're saying. There isn't all this research behind it. Yes, stay sceptical. Do your homework as well. But I am a firm believer that you do have to be in charge of your own medical destiny. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that's IVF or anything to do with medicine, if you go to the doctor and if there's anything wrong with you, be in charge of Mm. your own medical destiny. So do the research. Don't just sit in front of a doctor who says to you, take this drug Mm. and you'll get pregnant. Because if a doctor tells you that, run out of their surgery because they're they're talking rubbish. Question them as well. And, and, you know, as we've said before, listen to your gut. Mm -hmm. Mm. The other thing that I do want to say to you, because I remember we spoke about this the other day, is please be careful when you're looking at stats for clinics and success rates. Mm. Don't always look at the success rates because it depends on the type of patient that that clinic is willing to see. I know that there are clinics uptown that have amazing success rates. I also know those clinics won't touch me with a barge pole because I have certain conditions that they won't look at. Whereas my clinic that I saw here has a lower success rate but they take women over 40 they take people with low AMHs they will look at people with different issues who are probably more of a of a problem and aren't necessarily going to fall pregnant in the first sort of first transfer so it will skew the figures Mm. so just be careful when you're going in you're going into a clinic thinking this is going to work because this clinic's got a 76% success rate and I'm not going to go to that one because they've only got 56% depends on the patient to start out with it really does matter you've really lived it Alison which is why I just find it so good to speak to you you've done your research over the years you've had your treatment over the years and you can speak with real authority because of that Alison thank you so much for coming in today your wisdom is amazing you've been through a lot wish you hadn't but it can actually help a lot of people hopefully and thank you so much for sharing thank you so much you Alison. Are more than welcome so we've talked money a little bit haven't we just understanding that clinics are businesses so if you do have to go privately there is money involved it's not always easy to get hold of this money and I've seen people do massive extreme things I think it's really important on every level an emotional level a relationship level a money level to know your boundaries Mm. um so there are other things to consider than children right if you suffer really bad mental health or if you suffer in other ways it may not be worth it 
right? So I think it's really, really good to just sort out your boundaries and financial boundaries are important too. Totally. Um, I think it's something that I know that a lot of our followers have been in touch with. People do decide to go private because of various things, whether they just can't wait to be on the NHS, there's a postcode lottery, things like that. They sort of want to get an idea of what the finances involved are for a round of IVF. Finances are a massive part of this whole process. There are some people who could never consider going privately at all. So it's really not an option. I think for a lot of the people that I meet, they have a choice. They make sacrifices to go privately. Most people aren't just born with the cash in their back pocket. They will decide to save up over years or um, to get money from family members or to remortgage their house. Mm. I mean, you name it. I've heard of inheritances being given. Um, Again, we know any of those options is a luxury because some people it's just not an option. Of course. So when people are faced with the questions of how they're going to pay for it, most people don't just have the cash. No. So any kind of money saving option is always useful. And the clinics do offer that now. So there's a lot of payment plans that you can do just to help with the actual payment. You know, because an IVF round is what, Simone, it's, it's sort of around four grand. Yeah, it depends where you go. But that's without any of the meds. That's just basics of an IVF round. And as we've mentioned, there are the clinics, the private clinics, there are ways of of spreading the cost, you know, to, to do that. But there's also some amazing other options out there in terms of insurance. And um, there's one in particular called Access Fertility, which is what we used. And depending on your ovarian reserve, your age, how many rounds you want to try, you can pay um, a certain amount of money up front and based again on certain variables you can either get some back you know 50% back you can get 75% back or all of it back if it doesn't result in a live birth I think it's really worth just mentioning I mean access fertility I've only seen good things with honestly yeah they work for both the clinics who are using them or allowing access to use their name and they work for patients and honestly speaking what you get offered at the beginning is a reflection of what your body's doing yeah so if your body's looking like there's no real obvious reason why you're not getting pregnant i.e. your AMH level is really good your hormone levels your FSH and LH are quite low um you look like you've got good antral follicles, your lining looks good, all those basics, you're likely to, and your age, of course, you're likely to get uh, probably 100% guarantee Mm. back. So that's a challenge for the clinics Mm. to get this person pregnant. And the quicker they can get you pregnant, the less they have to spend in getting you pregnant. Yeah, of course. And it's good to know for the patient yeah. because they know we're it's, not going to spend any any more than this it is a peace of mind isn't it so it is win-win I think it's a really really good policy and then obviously depending on all those tests we just mentioned if they're less favorable then you'll get in quotes less favorable options but you're still going to have a cap on how much you're going to mm. spend yeah so I think that can work for people and also let's touch on the the meds because they are very expensive when you're not doing this on the NHS but there is some amazing things that you can do to cut down the costs and when I started my IVF round full support of the IVF group I mean they literally showed me the light I started purchasing my meds through my clinic but obviously you know they are a business they put a premium on it because you know they need to make money which I totally understand but there is this amazing 
supermarket out there <laughs> asda yeah so it's, it's a big plug for mr walmart right yes. and we we know in many ways they're not very ethical no but it's amazing how lovely people become when things actually touch mm. them personally yeah and i believe mr walmart's wife was going through fertility issues and he was sort of thrown by how much the meds were and he essentially decreed that he would essentially give them at cost price which is incredible because the amount of money you save for certain meds and obviously you, you know your protocol is very different to everyone else and changes most days but the fundamental meds is just so much cheaper it's just made such a huge difference it is a massive difference i think the clinic or hospital have to be willing to give you that prescription in order to allow you to go to get them some places would say no because their cost model is based on you paying for the IVF cycle and then paying for the meds yeah. and their cost model if everybody did that their cost model would be different which you might argue is the problem for the clinics or the hospital but that's instead of being four grand roughly for the cycle the cycle will be roughly five grand to account for everything but it is well worth knowing I think the only scary thing about that is sometimes it takes a few days yeah. for the supermarket to get the meds in which I found out. <laughs> well, one day. That, that can be, obviously, once you start taking these meds, the yeah. idea is not to stop until you're told to yeah. stop. And um, staying on top of that yeah. can actually be a stress. So unless you've got one of these places right near you and it's easy to get to, ultimately, you've heard me talk about stress, yeah. right, Danny? <laughs> ultimately, you don't want any stress in the process. Stress. And if it's something that's going to add another layer of stress, I would just moonwalk away from yeah. it. But do your research. Don't just think that you have to get your meds from your clinic. There are places like Asda. I think Sainsbury's also help supply a cheaper medicine. Depending on where you live, right? Yeah. You could probably call around to the closest, I don't know, five, six suppliers. Superstores, yeah, yeah. Either superstores or clinics mm. or hospitals and find out how much they charge for these things. And it's well worth doing that. And talking about stress, because I know we talk about it quite a lot um, and the impact of stress with going through any sort of fertility treatment. For me personally, I had to have an outlet going through treatment and fitness for me has always been the outlet. But obviously when going through IVF treatment, it's the sort of intense exercise, the last thing you should be doing. It's a big no-no. So I was always thinking, what else can I do for me really just to calm me down? And, and I just wanted to say like how amazing this app that I found was so, so good for me throughout all my different treatments and it's the mindfulness for IVF app and I did it before um, egg collection and post and they have specific programs throughout your treatment that you can align with what day your, your day of your cycle you're on and it's just the most soothing thing and I think prioritizing your mental health going through any of this is so so important you're so right you have to be you have to be on it. You have to be really calm. It has such an impact on your on your body. But you're very real and you're very honest again, right? You appreciate that it A, it's a big deal. B, you need to do something. And this mindfulness app, I've heard many people mention how amazing mm. it is. But you're in that group of people who says, okay, I, I realise I'm being honest with me. I will go to a support group. I will use a mindfulness app. Yeah. I will. And everybody isn't in that. Totally, no, I, and I totally get that. But maybe starting softly with an app yeah. is a very easy thing to do. You know, you're just downloading it and listening. You're not seeing anyone. So if you're not quite ready to face a support group or go online to one, this app is just a great way to kind of start the process. And it's what you can do in your 
life to make it less stressful. And actually, thankfully, um, workplaces have tweaked onto this. Mm. About it's, time. I know. It's it's not everywhere. No, but, but there which are, is appalling, quite it frankly. Is. I mean, there are new policies where um, it does take into account that people need to go for IVF visits and scans and blood tests. How did you find it, Danny? So I, um, well, my job is quite flexible in the fact that I tend to be out of the office multiple times. So I didn't tell my workplace um, I was going through fertility treatment for a year, year and a half. But when starting actual IVF, I just, I couldn't hide it. You know, you're in the clinic for at least a good few weeks to start with every other day, essentially. And you just can't be out of the office that often without not being found out. People almost. must wonder what's going on <laughs> with you. I know. So I had to come clean with my boss and, and I was lucky in the fact that my boss is very compassionate and very understanding and allowed complete flexibility. But, you know, I realised that's probably not the case with everyone. However, a lot of workplaces, part of the HR policy is a fertility policy. Now, I'm not saying they are not, quite frankly, I think, good enough for our modern day fertility treatment. But mine started at, I think it was five appointments that you could have, which sorry it's just not enough because you're going in every other day for weeks on end but it's under the discretion I think it's a discretional starting point so it's always check because you you do have options you do have rights people should have the time to take out when they need to totally and look you just don't want to add to the stress of it all do you absolutely you want the full support you want full support of the company that you work for and full support the people around you we do love to talk, don't we? <laughs> we but do love to talk. It's so true, Danny. I think all of this is a complete minefield. Mm. And anyone who claims to have all the answers, whether that be about add-ons or IVF or anything in life, mm. you just have to think that's a load of nonsense. That's what I think anyway. Nobody has all the answers. And the more we talk and share, the more we can actually learn things and find Literally. out what's right for us. And we just have to keep the faith with whatever we're doing. <laughs> so for more information about the things we've discussed in this episode, as always, visit our show notes. We love getting feedback. We're on Instagram and we really look forward to hearing from you. So keep the faith. Keep that faith. <laughs>